It has been a particularly tough week. I don't think you'll be surprised to know I mostly stared at the blank page on my computer, wondering how to stand up here and talk about a parable. I, I made sure the Kleenexes were under here. You should be prepared right now, guys. I just made sure before I started. Woof. We'll just set them there. Wondering how to stand up here and talk about this parable about a king who doesn't get what he wants and then he burns everything to the ground. Feels too real this week. There are too many pictures of the wages of war in my head to hear these words separate from the horrors of right now. It is a lot. And if you've had a hard time this week opening up social media or any kind of media turning on the news, if you've been struggling with feeling like everyone is picking sides or just so angry, or if like me, you're devastated that somehow wanting children not to die is a controversial take this week. I don't understand. You are not alone. To be honest, the easiest thing today would be to just set aside this text and talk about current events, and I, trust me, could do that. But that's not really the point of a sermon, is it? It would be easy also to simply preach a different text. I mean, the paired psalm with this Sunday morning is Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd. Wouldn't that be easier than this gospel story? It would be easier to press on like this is just another Sunday, like war isn't currently happening, that we all haven't seen images and heard stories, and even though we know we are not supposed to do it, read the comments. The easier thing would be to choose to preach something that makes us leave here feeling good so we can pretend for just an hour that the world isn't awful or that we could leave here confident we are the good guys in this story on the right side. I do think that would be easier, but I am not sure it's helpful or good, and I certainly don't think it's honest. As people of God, we aren't tasked with pretending or ignoring the pain and suffering of our neighbors, no matter if they are literally next door or across an ocean. We are called to hear them lament with and for them, and to recognize that our neighbors are not boiled down to a particular political party or government, but are people worthy of love and care and compassion. I am not sure I've seen or heard less compassion for entire groups of people this week than I have in my entire life. It has broken my heart. What do you even say right now? You say anything about protecting and saving Palestinian lives and you are called an anti-Semite. You say anything about Israeli lives and you are a monster who hates Palestine. Either way, you deserve to die. It feels impossible. And yet, if we can't talk about the world as it is right now, in this place, good gosh, where do we talk about it? I don't want this to be a place we pretend. I don't want this to be a place where we ignore 
I want this to be a place where we hold how hard this is in one hand and hold trying to do the most loving thing in the other. That's what I want. And so I'm going to try to preach this text today. Good luck me, right? As I sat staring at my blank screen this week, the words of this gospel, the only ones in front of me, the one question that kept rolling around in my head was, why is Jesus telling this story? I mean, that's what it is. It's a story, a parable, an allegory. It would be a mistake to give this a literal interpretation. If we do that, we end up with a mean God who can't handle rejection and goes on a killing spree. And I think that misses the mark on literally every level. I hope you agree. But we can't give it the same surface-level read we usually do, because when we do that, we get something like this. The king is God, and his son is Jesus, and the first round of the invited guests are the Jewish audience, and the second round of invited guests are the Gentiles, which is to say, us, and aren't we awesome? We are so lucky we got invited to the party. It's important to note how this particular surface-level read of this parable has been and is still used to further anti-Semitism. It should also be noted how convenient this interpretation is for you and for me. As author Debbie Thomas says, there is no discomfort for us. Just one heck of a party. What could be better? The snobs who renege on their RSVPs get their comeuppance. They die. But we who have the good sense to say yes to the king end up snug and cozy in his palace, feasting on wine and caviar while the world burns. She continues, this is the interpretation I grew up with, and for a long time I saw no problems with it. In fact, the interpretation was so airtight, it prevented me from accessing the actual parable at all. I glossed right over the extremity of its violence and the cartoonish quality of the plot. I reveled in its implicit judgment of those other people who stupidly reject the king's invitation and automatically place myself in the category of those who flock to the wedding feast, fancy garb at the ready. I grieve this reading now, she says. I repent of it. I repent of the way it automatically privileges me, my obedience, my good choices, my reward. I repent of the callous acceptance of vindictiveness, violence, and cruelty at its heart. I love that she just names a thing a thing, right? Part of why this parable is so hard to read and to hear, you might have seen me turn around, I know Georgia did, when uh, Dan says the word of the Lord and you're like, Ooh, am I supposed to say thanks for that? It sounds bad to end with weeping and gnashing of teeth, right? Like that doesn't really sound like good news. This parable is so hard to read and hear, and it doesn't quite sit right because we place God in the role of a king in parables, usually. And yet nothing about the king in this parable feels very godly. Jesus says this word that is a qualifier. The kingdom of God may be compared to this king, and what a lot of scholars have agreed these days is that the may is actually implying that it may not. So I wonder if we could hold in our heads this question, 
What if the king in this parable is not supposed to be God? I'm thankful that I'm not the only one who's wondered this. Scholars and theologians have been wrestling with this question for literally centuries, so we are not alone. And good gracious, I do wish I could stand up here and say there is consensus and here is definitely what this means, but that is just not true. And while that's not satisfying, I understand, particularly after the week in the news, I think it's at least faithful. Struggling with a difficult text like this is a part of being a person of faith. I love wondering what this could mean if it was not about God. What if the kings of the world are like this? What if Jesus is asking us to consider what the world looks like when the kingdom of God is compared to that kind of king? That's a familiar world for us, I think. I think Jesus wasn't actually trying to tell us about God in this parable. I could go on about the different interpretations, but I sort of wonder if that would miss the main point, which is that we make this story about the king, but it has always been about the guests. So then we come back to my initial question, why is Jesus telling us this story at all? What is he trying to teach us through it? Why am I so sure that this is about the guests and not the king? Well, context matters. We say this a lot here at Prince of Peace. What happened before Jesus tells this parable? Matters. Are you ready? It's a list. I'm going to go through it fast. The triumphant entry into Jerusalem, Palm Sunday. Everybody's like, you're a king, you're amazing, Hosanna, Hosanna. And the leaders are like, oof, this guy. And then he goes into the temple right after and tears a bunch of stuff down and makes people in power go, oof, this guy. And then he gets asked, by whose authority are you doing this? How, where's the power? Who gave you the power to do this, right? This is a power question. So they start getting antsy, these people in power, about this Jesus guy and the things he's saying. And they say, by whose authority is this? And he gives them three parables. And this is the third of three parables. We split them up over a lot of weeks. But these all happen at once. The first of these three parables was the parable of the two sons, which I'll tell you quick if you need a refresher, is the one who says, yeah, I'll go work in the vineyard and then doesn't. And the other one is like, I'm not going to go work in the vineyard and then does. And Jesus is like, which one is better? And they're like, obviously the one who did the work. And he's like, I know, right? And then they still don't get it. So he tells the parable of the wicked tenants, which we heard uh, Pastor Chad preach on last week. But the tenants uh, who kill the vineyard's owner's son in order to maintain their power and control over the land. And then before we get to this third of three parables, there are these two short verses in Matthew 21 when the chief priests and Pharisees heard these parables, they realized Jesus was speaking about them. They wanted to arrest him, but they feared the crowds because the crowds regarded him as a prophet. And then we start once more, because they didn't get it the first two times, so they maybe started thinking, I think this might be about us, you guys. Once more, Jesus spoke to them in parables, saying, the audience to this particular parable is the same as the two that came before it, the people in power with all the control. 
The same ones who had just realized these parables about authority and how God works in the worlds. The parables that keep saying, I'm literally giving you everything you need to be a disciple, to be faithful, and you cannot do it. You would rather kill and destroy rather than sacrifice one ounce of your power and control. This parable is the third of three saying, it doesn't work that way. Remember where Jesus is physically. He's in Jerusalem. Just days before he will be put to death by these same people in power. But that is not how it ends. These parables remind us when you want to ruin everything and burn it all down, God will find another way. It is some kind of courage for Jesus to stand there and speak these words to the people with the biggest guns. Jesus is talking about an invitation to a banquet, which includes the church leaders. And if this is about the guests, and the point isn't just who is invited or when they are invited, but what happens when you receive the invitation. Sort of put this parable into three steps. Step one, receive an invitation. Step two, show up. Step three, you got to change your clothes. Now, like most things in a parable, it's not actually about the thing we make it about. So it's not about clothes. I hope you caught that, but we're just going to make sure you catch this. And we're going to let St. Barbara Brown Taylor do this. Also, she's in Minneapolis this weekend, and I'm trying really hard to stay cool, but I'm not cool about it. But my favorite author, Barbara Brown Taylor, says this, the underdressed wedding guest got bounced because he would not rise to the occasion of feasting with the king. Maybe he thought the king was lucky he came at all. Maybe he thought he was doing the host a favor by showing up to eat the food that might have otherwise gone to waste. Whatever his logic, he did not rise to the occasion. Instead, he demeaned it by refusing to change. I'm not talking about clothes either. Like everything else in this story, the wedding robe has a deeper meaning. It's not a white linen tunic embroidered with gold thread. It is a way of life, one that honors the king, one that recognizes the privilege of being called into his presence, even if the invitation arrives at the last minute. The underdressed guest's mistake was not that he showed up in shorts, It was that he showed up short on righteousness and thought no one would notice, least of all the king. Like the underdressed guest, she says, some of us have rolled in here without thinking much about it. We've showed up with our spiritual shirt tails hanging out, lining up at the buffet table as if no one would see the ways in which we too have refused to change. Refusing to surrender our fear and resentment, refusing to share our wealth, refusing to respect the dignity of every human being. These are the old clothes we wear to the king's banquet, clothes we prefer to the wedding robe of new life. This parable is not about clothes. It's not about what this guy was wearing. One of my favorite interpretations, I think three years ago when this cycled through, I preached this interpretation, was that the guests are likely handed a robe when they walk in the door, right? Not everybody's got a a gown fit to be in front of the king, so the king provides a gown. So to be in the old clothes in this moment, it's not just a little like, whoops, sorry, but a big deal. 
It's refusing the robe, refusing to put on what God is handing you, refusing to rise to the occasion of feasting with the king, as Taylor says. That makes this not about the king. It really does make it about the guest. These guests think they are either entitled to the invitation or can just join the party but not have it change them to be there. I get it. I have been both of these guests. Sometimes I don't want to stop what I'm doing to show up to the party. Listen, I just got new couches and they are awesome and I would like to be in them all the time. It is hard to get up from my cozy couch to go fight injustice. It's really tiring. It's cold out there. People are mean. I'd rather stay on my couch. Sometimes we say yes to the invitation. We show up, but we don't want to change what we're wearing. Yes, I'm here, but listen, I'm not setting down my cynicism. It keeps me very comfortable. I'm for sure not setting down being right. That's my favorite outer layer. And you better not ask me to start being gasp, loving to everyone. I get it. Going to the party can be hard. Saying yes to the invitation can be hard. Changing once you get there is even harder. But not changing once we've joined the party is like pretending the world is not scary. Like we don't have a role to play in it or that there isn't work for us to do. We want to show up, not change, and eat the free food. The king should be honored. I'm here at all. If this parable is not about the king, but about the guests, it's a reminder that when we are invited to be a part of the kingdom of God, we are saying, we see the world is not as it should be. And we have a part to play in making it better. It's interesting to me that the paired psalm for today is Psalm 23, like I said. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Beloved and familiar, this psalm is often read during funerals, times of difficulty and grief at hospital bedsides. It feels strange that it is paired with this wedding banquet story. They don't seem to go together. But when you take just a little time to think about it, to spend a little time with the words and the imagery, you realize that in this psalm, God is setting a feast, a table, a banquet. And let me tell you, the bummer is we don't have a lot of control over the guest list. That sucks. But the good news is that God has control over the guest list. The good news is that God is choosing goodness and mercy for you and for me. Because honestly, we don't choose it for ourselves that often. And we choose it even less for each other. The good news is that as we walk in the door and show up to the feast, God is holding out a wedding robe and asking us to put it on, put on justice, put on compassion on this day. Even when the world feels like it's burning, when we walk in the valley of the shadow of death, we are not left alone. It feels scary right now, really scary in the world. There are people we love in danger. There are people we don't know in danger. They all matter. 
God is setting a table right now, preparing a feast, readying a change of clothes, holding out the robe and asking us to put it on. And here's the thing about this communion table we gather around this morning. We get to practice in this place, in this place where we don't pretend and don't hide and don't ignore. We get to practice accepting an invitation and putting on a robe at this table. It doesn't mean we get it right or we have to do it perfectly. Practice means we just try. We're here, we showed up, we're going to hold out our hands, and we are going to receive our portion of the feast right here. We believe that God gives us agency to say yes to the invitation and yes to the robe, and so we're going to practice it together this morning. All right, I'm going to read this little bit from St. Barbara. She says, God is looking for wedding guests who will rise to the occasion of honoring the sun. We can do that in shorts and running shoes as well as we can do it in suits and high heels because our wedding robes are not made out of denim or silk. They are made from the whole fabric of our lives using patterns God has given us, patterns of justice, forgiveness, loving kindness and peace. When we stitch them up and put them on, we are gorgeous, absolutely gorgeous. I don't know why we would want to wear anything else. Listen, I get how it's easier to put on a robe of retribution, of vengeance, of anger, of being mean in comments. I get it, I like those robes. Uh, I'm good at wearing them. But God is holding out a different robe for us to put on this morning as we go out into a world that needs us to be doing the opposite of what the rest of the world is doing. God needs us to go into the world and be people of peace and wholeness and kindness and love. The world needs us to be this kind of person and we practiced and now we take it with us as we go into the world to love and serve the Lord. Thank you.